Our sermon this morning is from Psalm 13, so turn to Psalm 13 in your Bible if you have it. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Psalm 13 on page 423, so go ahead and turn there, or you can follow along on the, on the screen here. Um, we're going to, yeah, spend a few minutes reading. Uh, psalm 13 is a Psalm of David, um, one, of, one of many. Uh, most There's a 150 Psalms, and... About half of them were written by David. The other half were kind of uh, interspersed with a bunch of other um, other authors. Psalm 13, in particular, some of the psalms, um, you know, are actually mention and specify where David was or what circumstances he was experiencing in his life when he wrote it. This is not one of them, and so um, so we don't know what like what the actual context of David's life was happening when this psalm was written, but it can kind of fit neatly probably, you know, I mean, uh, either before David ever became king when he was, you know, fighting someone like Goliath or the Philistines when he was kind of a a warrior, or uh, as like when he was uh, ascending to the throne and and Saul was kind of resenting him and pursuing him and trying to kill him, it might fit well there, or even after he became king uh, as he's shepherding God's people and defending them from some of the neighboring countries and things like that, but not sure when exactly it was, it was written. We know it was written by David, and it's a prayer. It's a prayer to God. We're going to see three, um, three movements. In fact, they're kind of broken up by, by paragraphs. So you can, one, two, three, four, and five, six. We're going to you know, see the first two verses um, is David uh, just uh, honestly uh, confessing and kind of acknowledging his, his circumstances and what he is experiencing and how he's feeling and kind of um, disclosing just the angst that he's feeling in his heart. So the first two verses is just this, this uh, brutal honesty. Verses 3 and 4, David then brings these uh, bold requests to God, praying and asking God for grace and mercy out of that space of honesty. So, so um, you know, brutal honesty and, and bold requests in verses 3 and 4. And then finally, just... Um, kind of a, a ruthless commitment to, to trust and worship God in verses 5 and 6. So, so honest, honest acknowledgement of what he's experiencing, bold request of what he wants and needs from God, and then just a commitment to trust and worship God uh, as, he, as he walks forward. So we're going to look at those three kind of phases, those three kind of movements of this prayer here, and consider how this prayer of David kind of serves as a, a template or a model for us when we uh, when we come before the Lord in, in prayer. So uh, let's read these six verses together and then pray, and then we will dive in and, and talk about them and spend some time uh, considering them. It says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together and open your word and read your word and listen to your word and consider your word and study it together. Lord, we pray, we ask that you would use these next few minutes in our hearts and in our lives to to draw us closer to yourself and to make us uh, more like Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so first two verses, uh, four kind of questions, one after the other. How long, O Lord? Right? David is, is praying to God out of this space of, of you know, waiting and longing for something to happen, something to click into place, right? And he's starting to lose hope. He's starting to, you know, experience frustration. He's starting to think maybe this is never going to to happen. Maybe this season that I'm in is never maybe the season that I'm in is never going to to end. How long, O oh Lord, will you will you forget me forever? So forget like when he's saying, God, God, will you forget me forever? You, you, you seem to have forgotten me, and I'm hoping that you will not continue to forget me forever, but it seems like maybe you will. You forget, you know, you forget someone or you forget something because that person or that thing doesn't matter that much to you. If you meet the President of the United States, or if you meet, like, your favorite movie star or rock star or athlete or, you know, you probably won't forget that moment. You'll probably take pictures of it. You'll document it. You'll, you know, remember it and tell the story. So you, you remember things that matter to you. You forget things that you, you even remember things that you, uh, you know, hate, right? You, you, if there's someone that you love, you remember them, you care about them. If there's someone that you, that you really uh, hate, then you probably remember them because you're, you know, brooding about them and, and, you know, stewing over why you don't like them. You forget things that just don't, they don't really, they're not on your radar. They don't matter. They don't rise to the level of being important enough to matter to you. That's what you forget. Think things like that. And so David feels like he has become that to God. God has more important things to attend to than me. God uh, cares about other people more than I do. He cares about other things more than, more than me. And so God has effectively forgotten me. God, will, will this forgetting of me last forever or will it come will it come to an end so david is struggling with the idea that god doesn't love him enough and david doesn't matter enough to god for god to remember him which is why he seems to have been forgotten by god but it's not just that it's not just that this kind of passive failing to remember or, or forgetting that God thinks that, or that David thinks that God has done to him. But there's also this kind of active, you know, how long will you hide your face from me, right? That's more intentional. It's, it's less passive, more active, right? If you forget someone, you probably didn't intend to, you might have been well-intentioned, but you just forgot because, you know, you know, forgetting is, you know, I called you and you didn't call me back. Well, you know, I forgot because, you know, my, my kid got sick, we had to take him to the ER, you know, stuff fell through the cracks, I just forgot. Uh, hide your face from me is, you know, I called you a bunch of times, you didn't return any of them, 
I saw you in the grocery store, you ducked into the next aisle over because you didn't want to, right, you're, you're actively avoiding me. So, so he feels like God has passively maybe forgotten about me because other things are more important than me to God, but also God is actively avoiding me. He's not answering my prayers. I'm calling out to him. I'm crying out to him. I'm wondering where God is and what uh, God is doing, and, and I, I need God to intervene in my life, and, and he, he won't. So, so how long will God forget me, passive kind of forgetting how long will God hide his face from me, this active avoidance? How long must I take counsel in my soul? Which is a, you know, a, a, a strange, um, you know, a strange uh, way to kind of, kind of word it. When you, when you take counsel from someone, you, if you, you know, if you have a big decision and you, you solicit counsel from people around you, you're, you're constantly going to them and asking them, what would you do if you were in my shoes? How would you handle this? You know, give me your, your advice. And these, these, you know, when the, when the President of the United States has a big decision that he has to make, according to all the TV shows and documentaries I've seen, um, if he has a big decision, he will, you know, be in the Oval Office and invite people from different perspectives in to kind of, and, and he's going to solicit counsel from them. So, you know, we're, you know, we're considering whether our country wants to go to war. So let's call in the, you know, the five-star general who thinks that we definitely have to go to war. It's the only way to secure, you know, to secure the safety of our, of our, you know, nation. But then let's also call in the, you know, the, the, sociology professor or whatever, right? Like the guy who, like the, the guy who specializes in international relations. And, and this guy's probably going to think, let's find a peaceful solution. Maybe let's, you know, see if we can talk with their ambassador or their head of state and find a way to, to you know, uh, get what we want without going to war. So the president will bring them both in and kind of sit them both down and say, now, you know, give me your counsel. And he's basically telling them, I want you guys to debate with one another. I want you to argue with one another. I want you to put your best arguments and give me your best evidence for why I should do the thing that you want me to do instead of the thing that this other guy wants me to do. And so he's taking counsel as these, as these two people kind of argue and debate and, and wrestle with each other. And so David is saying, that's what's going on in my own soul. That, that there, there's this there's this, in, there's this inner turmoil, this, this arguing, debating. Like, inside my own soul, there is just like this, uh, you know, wrestling that's going. I, I lie awake at night just thinking back and forth, not, not quite sure of what uh, is, is, you know, happening, what's the best way that I should uh, proceed because of this inner turmoil, this inner debating and wrestling that I am experiencing. How long must I take counsel and wrestle in my heart. So verse 2, you know, the, the, yeah, the first phrase of verse 2, you, know, you almost imagine someone that, you know, again, having difficulty sleeping because their, their heart, their mind is racing, they're struggling, their, their, inner, their inner monologue is just, you know, keeping them awake at night. But then the second phrase, it talks about all day. How long must I have sorrow in my heart all the day? So, all night long, I'm struggling to sleep because I'm wrestling internally all day long. I'm struggling to get out of bed because I'm, you know, experiencing, you know, some sort of depression. I'm, I'm sad. I'm sorrowful. I am, you know, um, d- despairing. I have this deep sorrow uh, in my heart all day, all day long. 
How long shall my enemy be exalted? Right? So, so David, th- these, these first two verses just show the picture of a person who is deeply, is suffering deeply, right? He's crying out to God and has been for some time and seems to have gotten no answer from God. Just radio silence back from heaven. Here's this thing that I want. Here's this thing that I need. So far as I can tell, it's a godly ambition. It's a godly aspiration. I'm not sure why you wouldn't answer this prayer, God. Why are you forgetting me? Why are you hiding your face from me? Right? You're single and you want to be married and you pray and you're, you're asking God to, you know, bring a, a spouse into your life and years go by and he doesn't. Maybe it starts to feel like you won't. You're married and your marriage is not as healthy as you want it to be. And so you're praying for your spouse and praying that God would graciously give you uh, you know, unity and, and intimacy in your marriage, and it doesn't seem to be happening. You wonder if God, you know, you wonder if God is just not going to answer that prayer. Or you're a parent, and you have children, and maybe, you know, you're praying that they would trust in Christ, or maybe they're grown. You're praying that they would, would walk with the, the Lord, and, um, you know, you've been praying for years, and there seems to be little signs of God answering that that prayer, praying for your non-Christian friends, neighbors, family, co-workers, praying that the Lord would give you opportunities to share the gospel with them, praying that uh, the Lord would soften their heart and, and be gracious to them and help them to turn from their sin, right? Maybe you're praying to overcome a particular besetting sin in your own life and you find that you continue to fall victim to it uh, over and over. You've struggled with it for, for years. I imagine, that, I imagine that all of us can, can find some way to empathize with what David's feeling here, right? Uh, wanting something, longing for something, praying for something, asking God for something, and just not getting it for an indefinite period of time and wondering if God has forgotten about us, wondering if God is actively hiding from us wrestling in our souls because of this apparent lack of response from God when we pray, sorrow and sadness and depression because it feels like God is ignoring us. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Right? With, with, with David, this is probably, you know, referring to literally uh, a, a military enemy, someone that wants to kill him, right? Someone that's trying to assassinate him, someone that's trying to, you know, thwart his military efforts. So we might not, you know, we might not, you know, all be familiar with that aspect of of, uh, David's experience, but we all certainly have, you know, enemies, right? If the, the, the context here seems to imply that David has an enemy that is pursuing him and that is, you know, hostile toward him, and the main thing that this enemy hates about David is that David loves God and David wants to be faithful to God and that desire to, to trust God and walk with God and be faithful to God is what uh, you know, seems to bring about the persecution of and the opposition of this particular enemy. So I imagine that maybe uh, all of us have felt that in one way or another, having been persecuted, having had someone shut us down, 
And we had someone uh, treat us uh, unkindly because of our faith. And even if, even if we don't, uh, you know, even if we're not familiar with having an enemy like David uh, is, is, you know, talking about here that's per- persecuting us for that reason, all of us have an enemy, right? The, the world, the flesh, the devil, Satan, sin, death, right? We have these, these enemies that are actively trying to keep us from walking with God. And when we feel like God is far away, when we uh, are wrestling with inner turmoil in our souls, when we're uh, you know, sad and sorrowful all day long, that is effectively uh, our enemy, Satan, you know, uh, having victory over us, in some small sense being exalted over us. And so verses 1 through 2, in a lot of ways, I think describe, if they, if they don't describe your Christian experience right now, then I'm guessing you don't have to think very far into the past to remember a time when they do or certainly, um, at some point in the future, uh, Psalm 13, verses 1 through 2, will be an accurate description of your spiritual experience. And so here's the thing, right? Like, God hadn't forgotten David, right? Uh, David, um, you know, sorrow and angst and inner turmoil, all of these things were... were um, not inappropriate responses for what, what, what he was kind of walking through, but God, like, just because David felt like God had forgotten him and is actively praying and wondering, God, have you forgotten me? How long will you forget me? How long will you, like, th- those aren't true things about God, but they feel that way. And so Psalm 13 is, um, it's, it's written, it's, it's in our Bibles to give voice to the Christian when they feel that way. So many of the Psalms are in our Bible so that we can have some category for how to express what we're feeling in the darkest of, of times, right? It's, it's of no value to go before the Lord in prayer and, and pretend to be happier than you are. Or to pretend like the difficult circumstances that you're walking through are not happening. Prayer is an incredible gift from God. Prayer is an incredibly useful tool. But prayer is only useful if you're being honest when you pray. If you're honestly acknowledging your reality, the severity of your situation, instead of pretending that everything is is good because you would be embarrassed if someone found out that your life is not going as well as you like to pretend that it is when you're in their, their presence. So God, right, when David prays to God, he is brutally honest. And when we come before God in prayer, God wants us to be honest with him. Right, Jesus, you know, when Jesus says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who have these long prayers, all these big formal fancy words and everything is very polished and sanitized and choreographed and it's all very impressive to everyone that's around them. Jesus is saying, chances are those people who pray like that are hurting and sad, but they are not willing to put their cards on the table and acknowledge as much because they don't want anyone, including God, to see their 
vulnerabilities. And so Jesus says, when you pray, don't be like those fake people who pray like that. Instead, be like a child speaking to his father, speaking to her father. With no pretense, right? A child speaking to the person that they love, that they know, that they interact with regularly, that they trust that this person is going to provide for them and take care of them and and protect them. Children are honest with their parents. Jesus was honest with his father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, right, um, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup from me, right? Please don't make me, I don't want to go to the cross, right? I'm, I'm experiencing inner turmoil. I'm, I'm sweating drops of, of blood. I'm, I'm, I'm um, severely in distress. I, I'm taking counsel in my own soul, and I have sorrow in my heart all day long because of this devastating mission that I'm on, and I'm sad, and I'm hurting, and please, you know, right, Jesus practices the same brutal honesty that David practices here in Psalm 13. God wants us to be honest when we come before him in prayer. Honest about what we're experiencing, what we're feeling. Honest about what's going on in our hearts in that moment. But, honesty is great. But it's not sufficient in and of itself if it's not then punctuated with boldness to ask God and pray to God for what we need. And that's verses 3 through 4, right? Consider me and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I, see the, the sleep, lest I sleep the sleep of death. And so, so David is brutally honest. Here's who I am. Here's what I'm experiencing. I'm sad. I'm hurting. Um, my faith is wavering. I'm not sure that I even believe, God, that you are there and, and attentive to me at all. And please remember me. Please consider me. Please answer me. Please light up my eyes. Please restore my, my life. God, God, if you don't intervene, if you don't draw near to me, if you don't do something about my current situation, I am going to die. I am going to sleep the sleep of, of death. So it's not, you know, God, I want you to, you know, do this thing. And if you do, it'll be really fun. And if you don't, it won't be that big of a deal. Or, God, I just, you know, whatever. Made this investment and I would really like it to pay off. It's, God, if you don't answer me imminently, soon, if you don't answer my prayers, I'm going to die. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to lose my life. Right? The stakes could not be any higher for David. Consider me, answer me, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. So this is kind of a callback to verse 2, right? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Verse 2, uh, it's this kind of objective reality statement of fact of, of a thing that has happened. My enemies uh, are exalted over me. They have defeated me. They have overcome me. They have been victorious over me. But verse 4, it kind of builds on that. To say, not only have my enemies defeated me, and not only are they exalted over me, but they are now mocking me and humiliating me and ridiculing me. They're looking at me and scoffing and laughing and saying that we have prevailed over him, right? 
my foes are not, they, they not only have shaken me, but they are rejoicing because of the fact that I am shaken. So it's gone from simple defeat in verse 2 to psychological and emotional humiliation in verse 4. God, listen to me, draw near to me. If you don't, then all of the suffering and sorrow that I'm experiencing is going to give way to death, and all of the failure and defeat that I'm experiencing is going to give way to mockery and ridicule and humiliation. So, so there's brutal honesty about who I am and what I'm experiencing, but then there's a bold request. The, and that bold request is flanked with strong language, right? This is life or death. If you don't intervene for me, if you don't intercede for me, I am going to die. So, so da- you know, David doesn't just say, right, like, he's not just honest, right, God, I'm, um, I'm single and I want to be married, and then just leave those facts out there. It's I'm single and I want to be married, and so please answer my prayer. Please bring a spouse into my life. God, God I want my marriage to be better. But it's, it's that and then... Please do it. Please bring unity and intimacy into my marriage. God, my kids are struggling. They're not growing up the way that I hoped that they would. It feels like you've forgotten. It's that and please do it. Please work in their hearts and conform them to the image of your son Jesus. It's not, uh, God, I earnestly desire for these people that I know to trust in Jesus. It's that and please soften their hearts and give them the gift of repentance and faith so that they can trust in him. It's not just, God, I have this besetting sin in my life and I really wish that I would have victory over it. It's that and, God, I'm asking you specifically and boldly, please give me victory over this sin in my life. Please sanctify me. Give me humility, self-control. Give me a love for your word. That, that outpaces my love for the world and for, for sin. When you pray, so verses 1 through 2 show us that when you pray, God wants you to be honest with him. He doesn't want you to pretend to be happier or more put together than you really are. But verses 3 through 4 tell us that when you pray, you can actually ask God for real things. You don't have to nuance your prayers to death, right? If you're, right, if, if uh, you know, if a loved one is diagnosed with cancer, you don't have to pray, you know, hypothetically, you know, if it w- is in your will, but if not, then don't worry about it, but, but God, I would really like it if this were to happen, but if not, it's right. You can actually ask God for real things and, and boldly ask him, God, I pray that you would heal uh, my loved one. God, I pray that you would heal me. God's not obligated to answer all of our prayers right away every time. Our prayers don't somehow magically force God's hand to act in a way that he otherwise would not have acted, but God is not afraid of and God is not offended by bold requests that are brought to him from his people. He welcomes it. He loves it. So ask God boldly for the things that you want and the things that you need. Come before him with brutal honesty, acknowledging your circumstances, your experiences, your feelings, your emotions. Come before God with big, bold requests and ask him to intercede for you and to take care of you. And then verses 5 through 6, right? Come to God with this ruthless commitment to trust him, to love him, 
to rejoice in Him, to worship Him. I have trusted in your steadfast love. Right? The, verse 5 represents something of a radical departure from verses 1 through 4, right? Verses 1 through 2, I'm suffering, I'm struggling, I don't even know if you're there, I don't even know if I believe in you anymore, I'm wrestling in my heart, I'm sad all day long, I'm depressed. Verses 3 through 4, please help me, please intercede for me, please be gracious to me, please save me from dying. And again, we don't have any like context into when this psalm was written, but it almost seems like, like David wrote verses 1 through 4 and then like put his, put his notebook away and like can't circle back to it days or weeks or months or years later and looked and said, uh, wow, this, like, look at these prayers that I wrote several years ago and now looking back on my life, look at all of those incredible, miraculous, magnificent ways that God answered those prayers. That could be, what hap- that could be how this psalm w- was written. I don't see any reason to assume that. Which makes me think that verse 5 Nothing big or extravagant or magical or, or you know, to, that, that we can tell nothing happened between verses 4 and 5. So there's this radical departure. There's this, like, uh, you know, this, this uh, drastic 180 that happens between verse 4 and verse 5. Like, the only way that a guy who wrote verses 1 through 4 would then say what David says in verse 5 is, is seemingly if God had swooped in out of nowhere and just all of a sudden, you know, changed David's circumstances and alleviated all of David's suffering so that he doesn't have to wait anymore like he has been waiting, so he doesn't have to suffer and struggle and, and wrestle. But we don't have, like... Either that happened, and we, we don't, you know, and, and that's how this psalm was written, or David is writing verse 5, even though he is in the circumstances of and feeling the emotions of verses 1 through 4. He's somehow manufacturing trust in God's steadfast love when he is currently experiencing radio silence from God. How long will you forget me? How long will you hide from me? Will you please intercede for me and intervene for me because you haven't? And if you don't, I think I'm going to die. In that headspace is when he writes that I will trust in your steadfast love. I think we often tend to We often tend to approach prayer and approach theology and approach just how we understand God with this kind of circumstance-dependent way of thinking. When our circumstances are difficult, it's inner turmoil, like in verses 1 through 2, we tend to think, as soon as this ends then I'll be able to trust God. God will, at that point, God will have shown himself to be trustworthy, so I'll be able to trust him, and then I'll be able to, to worship him. Right? I'm waiting on God to change my circumstances, and then I will change my behavior. Then I will change my heart posture. Seemingly, in Psalm 13, David doesn't say that. David says, 
I am going to resolve and commit and fight to demonstrate godly behavior, a godly heart posture, right now, even in the midst of this suffering and this turmoil. I'm not going to wait for God to give me what I want, and then I will love God, then I will trust God, then I will worship God. I'm going to, I'm going to gut it out and trust God and worship God, even though I am in a terribly difficult season or, or circumstance. So there's this ruthless commitment to trust God and trust in the steadfast love of God, even though he's in the, in the valley of verses 1 through 4. But trusting God is a, it's a thing that you do, right? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an act of the of the will, something that you can kind of decide, I'm, I'm going to trust uh, in, in God. That's, that's kind of the first clause of verse 5. But the second one, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. So that uh, is, is, has, has less to do with your will and your volition and more to do with your emotions and your affections. And so, so David is saying, not only am I going to uh, strive to pull my will Right, my will is inclined to go this way because I'm in uh, difficult circumstances. I'm going to pull it this way, and my emotions are inclined to go this way because I'm in difficult circumstances, and I'm going to pull them this way. I'm going to fight to rejoice in God and rejoice in the salvation of God, even though presumably David hasn't even experienced that salvation yet. Right? If if David is in a season, a circumstance that's marked by verses 1 through 4, then he hasn't experienced salva- like the salvation from this particular trial. He hasn't experienced it. He's praying for it. He's hoping for it. He's asking God for it. He's telling God that if I don't get it, I'm going to die. But he hasn't received it yet. And yet here he says in verse 5, my heart will rejoice in your salvation. So he's almost uh, praising God and worshiping God um, preemptively, in anticipation of some future deliverance or salvation that has not yet happened to him. And so he's saying, I rejoice that, not that you have saved me because I'm still in the middle of this difficult season that I need to be saved from. I rejoice that you are going to save me and and I trust you that you are going to, to save me. I rejoice in the salvation of the Lord that I uh, fully expect that I will receive. I have cancer. I've been praying for it to go into remission. By all accounts, according to every doctor I talk to, that doesn't appear to have happened. It looks like I might die from it. I have every reason to be frustrated and sad, but even in that sad space, I'm going to rejoice. Even out of this current circumstance of suffering that has not changed yet, I'm going to rejoice as if it has changed, or I'm going to rejoice in anticipation of it presumably changing at some point in the the future. Verses 5 through 6 represent this radical departure from verses 1 through 4. And it's almost as if David, as he, he prays himself out of this 
state of despair. He prays himself out of this state of, of um, depression. David decides in his heart, I am not going to let my circumstances dictate terms to me. I'm not going to be a slave to my circumstances. I'm not going to let the suffering that I'm walking through tell me who I have to be or what I have to think or what I have to feel. I'm not going to let my suffering toss me about to and fro, cause me to doubt or sin or turn away from God. I'm not going to be dependent. I'm not going to say, uh, God, I will trust you when my circumstances change. God, I will worship you when my circumstances change. God, I will delight in you and rejoice in you when my circumstances change. David says, what's happening in my life, even at this very moment, right? What's happening in my life does not dictate terms to me. It does not dictate terms to the way I feel about God. I'm not some pawn who is just the passive recipient of, right? What I think and feel about God is just the passive recipient of what my circumstances say that it has to be. I'm a person. I I have agency and intellect and emotion and will. I have the capacity to be faithful to God even in the midst of circumstances that are not ideal, circumstances that don't lend themselves to being faithful to God. I don't need to have a perfect life in order to worship God. I don't need to have to have all of my prayers answered exactly the way that I want them to be on my exact timetable in order to worship God and rejoice in God. I can delight in God and trust in God and rejoice in God preemptively in anticipation of a future salvation that I have not experienced yet, a future deliverance from suffering that I have not experienced yet. I trust in your steadfast love. I rejoice in your salvation. And I will sing to the Lord because he has, past tense, he has dealt bountifully with me. So that means, right, even though I'm in an experience that's marked by verses 1 through 4, I'm suffering, God seems far away. I'm wrestling, I'm sad, I'm praying and asking God, even though that's where I am, I can still uh, trust in God and rejoice in God in anticipation of his saving me and delivering me from that circumstance. But also I can recognize in verse 6 that even in that state of suffering, God has still been good to me. He's still been incredibly, he's still dealt bountifully with me. Even though I'm in verses 1 through 4, verse 6 is still true. Even with cancer, prolonged singleness, difficult marriage, unanswered prayers, children, family members who don't know the Lord, right? Even though all of these things are happening, if I, if I look carefully at my life, and my soul, and God, and what I deserve, the undeniable reality is that God has and is currently treating me far better than I deserve to be treated. And so I can sing to God, because even in these circumstances, even in this suffering, uh, I'm still on the receiving end of the incredible grace of God, the unmerited favor of God. God is still treating me better than I 
deserve to be treated. Psalm 13 is not the picture of some sort of weak, cotton candy, pseudo-spiritual, pop-psychology, American Christianity, right? Where I'm going to pretend that everything's okay, I'm not willing to suffer, I feel that I'm entitled to health and wealth and comfort and security and and personal autonomy and personal fulfillment and no one can tell me what to do and God doesn't get to tell me what to do and uh, I God works for me and I don't work for him and and uh, God owes me the life that I want and and I might uh, I might decide to do God the favor of worshiping him if and when he gives me the life that I want on the terms that I want Psalm 13 is not a picture of that kind of you know, American Christianity. Which, I mean, is really not... Which is, which is really just the worship of self or created things that's kind of disguised as Christianity and kind of given, you know, Christian terms as, as, as labels. Psalm 13 is not a picture of that kind of cotton candy Christianity. Psalm 13 is a picture of real... a real Christian who's really praying who's really suffering, who's really being persecuted, he's really crying out to God, he's really calling out for help and grace and intercession with brutal... God, where are you? Have you forgotten me? Have you forsaken me? Why am I wrestling in my soul all night long? Why am I suffering with sorrow all day long? What's going on here? And then that brutal honesty gives way to bold requests. God, please hear me. Please consider me. Please draw near to me. Please preserve my life. Please give me victory over my enemies. Right? So then that brutal honesty gives way to bold requests, which then give way to just ruthless uh, commitment to trust and worship God. I trust in your steadfast love. I will sing to you because you have dealt bountifully with me. Right? That's how we see David praying in Psalm 13. That's how God is calling us to come before him in prayer. And that framework of honesty, requests, and commitment to worship God is essentially, we see that, we see that same kind of through line in the sacrament of communion. We come before God, together as a church family, honestly confessing our sins, honestly confessing just the the plight that that we have sinned against God and we have incurred the wrath of a holy God. But then we also come to the table with this bold request Right? That God, despite our sinfulness, despite our uh, deserving His wrath, we come with this bold request that God would save us, that God would keep us, that God would forgive us of our sins through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then we come to the table with this, this ruthless commitment that I am going to trust in God. I am going to worship God. And I'm going to persevere in that. When, when you come to the, to the communion table as a church family, it is effectively re, you know, re-professing. It, it, you know, 
When you, when you uh, come to the church for the first time, when you're baptized or enter into a church, you're telling that church family, I love Jesus, I'm walking with Jesus, you make a profession of faith. But when we celebrate communion together, we are saying that that's still true. Right? Everything that I said at my baptism, everything that I said when I came into the covenant community is still true of me now. I'm still walking with the Lord. I still am committed to trust in the steadfast love of the Lord, to rejoice in the salvation of the Lord, and to sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So, so this, this, um, this arc that we see in Psalm 13 plays itself out in the, the sacrament of, of communion. Honesty requesting and then, and then committing to respond appropriately. 1 Corinthians 11 says, On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're a Christian, if you're a member of the body of Christ, the family of God, we invite you to come celebrate communion with us. After I pray, the musicians are going to come up and play some music. You can come kind of forward down the middle aisle grab the elements, there's uh, gluten-free crackers and grape juice, head back to your seats. Just take a moment while the guys play some, play some chords for us. Take a moment to think and pray and meditate. Take a moment to confess your sin. Take a moment to ask boldly for Jesus to forgive you of your sin. And take a moment to resolve in your heart to trust God and to, and to walk with him and to worship him together. If you're a Christian, we invite you to celebrate with us. If you're not a Christian, we would ask you not to take communion because the scriptures teach against it. Instead, we'd invite you to take Christ and to trust in him so that he could save you from your sin, save you from the wrath of God, so that you can be reconciled to him and enjoy his presence forever. Let's pray, and then the musicians can play while we celebrate communion. Father in heaven, we confess together that it often feels like you have forgotten us, like you are hiding your face from us. Oftentimes we are wrestling internally with sorrow in our hearts. And so Lord, we pray that you would hear us and answer us and save us from sin and death and hell. And Lord, we trust you. We trust in your steadfast love. We rejoice in your salvation. And we sing to you because you have um, been good to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.